Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. In 1959, we entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as Blacks and African Americans. Our guest is author, athlete, and teacher John McCluskey from the Harvard College class of 1966. Back in 1964, when he was a junior at Harvard, he became the first African American to start at quarterback. He has retired from Indiana University as a professor of African American and African Diaspora Studies. He grew up in Middletown, Ohio. I'm joined by 12 of my classmates. Let's start with George Allen. George, where are you? How are you? And uh, we'll go from there. I'm in Los Angeles. Uh, I'm in this group because I was uh, a roommate of Fred Armstrong and uh, Fred Easter and Hobie Armstrong. Uh, I'm uh, uh, a semi-retired or attempting to retire a lawyer, not very successfully. John. Oh, hey. uh, This uh, Woodford, John Woodford here in Ann Arbor. Michigan. I was a journalist in various uh, places, and I can remember uh, Travis Williams, my freshman roommate and pal. We went to see uh, McCluskey uh, several times as soon as he started uh, at Harvard. And later, I worked for Ebony Magazine, and Ebony did a big spread. I couldn't find it online. I wish I could have sent it to people because they did about a four-page spread, didn't they, John? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Great. Nick. Uh, Nick Bancroft, uh, outside of Boston, Medfield, Mass., uh, classmate of these guys. Um, John, when you and your near predecessors were throwing a perfectly good football around a field somewhere, uh, I was uh, rowing a perfectly good boat backwards for four years up the river. Little crew. All right. Right. Doug Shapiro living in uh, Louisville. Um, I haven't played football since I was in elementary school, but I've been a lifelong college football plan, and I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say. Okay. Alden. Uh, Professor McCluskey, I want to thank you very much because when I finished Harvard, I taught for three years in South Carolina at a private school. The uh, One of the other teachers there was a class of 63 at Yale. The uh, headmaster had been an All-American soccer player at Yale and was in a class of uh, 29. And uh, so that fall uh, game day was was pretty tight, uh, pretty tense. And and here's a picture of the four of us, uh, or the the assistant headmaster was also from Harvard. So it was was tough. And thank you very much for winning that game because (laughs) Uh, that really made my day. (laughs) Barry. Uh, Barry Williams. I'm out here in California. I'm retired. I had a career in business. Uh, But what I did best was marry up twice. So I'm comfortably (laughs) living in retirement. Uh, I am a classmate of uh, John McCluskey and president of his fan club. Okay, (laughs) great. Peter. I'm Peter DeLissavoy. Uh, since our last meeting, I, I came up to Michigan, there, John, uh, from Florida, 
on the way, I, I'll tell an interesting story. On the way, I stopped in southwest Georgia, where I was in SNCC, and I stopped to see old civil rights uh, friends. And uh, we, we put out a book uh, of stories, and it's uh, out of print now. The, the white mayor of the town is now going to underwrite a new edition of the book about how the old white mayor used to persecute us. And... Uh, <laughs> There's a civil rights museum in the town and community center. He took me out to dinner. He took me out to what we would have called a roadhouse in, in the old days. It was just an unbelievable development. It was a whole mall that has been taken over. And there were nightclubs, uh, restaurants, banquet halls, private rooms, pool halls. <clears throat> so the mayor and I walked in and the first thing couple of guys walked up to us with the type of masks, you know, that have the, the skull and teeth showing, scary. But they, they weren't going to enforce the mask uh, mandate. They frisked us down to see whether the mayor and I were packing any heat. <laughs> and then we, then we met the, uh, the owner of this incredible development. It's, I mean, the labor costs are a lot lower down there, but it, millions of dollars been poured in there. And he's a guy from Kenya. All this money has come in from Kenya. And I got to practice my Swahili with the guy from <laughs> the old days. So he, he, he went to Albany State and stayed there. And uh, now there's a whole Kenyan establishment in Southwest Georgia, biggest place in town. All right. Amazing. All right. David. <laughs> I, too, am a classmate of all these guys, and uh, uh, I grew up in South America and live in Philadelphia and spent most of my career with public television in New York City and in Philadelphia, public television and public radio. Okay, Spencer. Hi, Spencer Jordan. I'm from Evanston, Illinois, uh, Harvard uh, 61, and uh, since then, I have uh, been uh, first part of my life is very talked about was specializing in black economic development. Uh, we had a grand time and did it'll put together a couple of great good businesses. And uh, the second half of my life, which I'm doing now is uh, for the last 40 years committed to sustainable development and economic development and education. Uh, one last uh, two seconds is the Harris is in uh, Honduras now, and uh, she's negotiating for economic development migration. And one of the projects that I started in uh, 2002, <laughs> I joined, I should say, is now this topic, a uh, big center of that is the coffee, largest coffee enterprise in Honduras. So we may be in the news, finally, after 22 years. Okay, okay great. Mason. <laughs> Uh, my name is Mason Morfitt. <clears throat> I was Kent's roommate before he became famous. <clears throat> uh, <laughs> Infamous. <laughs> I now live in Maine most of the time, although I'm currently in Florida for the winter. And I remember outstanding student athletes uh, of my generation, one of whom was Chris O'Heary, who was oh. on a Nigerian who had been on, oh. the, I believe, on the Nigerian Olympic team. Yes. Uh, and he started yes. playing for Harvard as a freshman. And apparently the press didn't cover freshman games. They just waited for uh, handouts from the athletic department. Uh, but the Boston press started, uh, his name was O-H-I-R-I, -I, 
<clears throat> the Boston Press spelled it O apostrophe H-I-R-I, uh, -I, thinking he was Irish. And uh, when, he, when he showed up on the sophomore team, they were there, very discovered to uh, find out there was another meaning to Black Irish. <laughs> right, right. Uh, Hamp. It's been a very important part of my identity that I was an athlete in tennis and squash up through my junior year at Harvard when I quit. Uh, and uh, I go back, I have a love-hate relationship with uh, uh, football. When the Titans did pretty well this year, I, I, I started to uh, feel much uh, better about it. But, but I'm uh, looking forward to today if, if we can integrate uh, so, uh, some of these experiences in, in terms of sports, uh, race, whatever else. Okay, George. George yeah. Jones, currently living in Ann Arbor, I'm, but I'm proud to be an Okie from Muskogee. <laughs> yeah. All right, John, how are you? Welcome. I'll start, not, not pre-Harvard, uh, but uh, the first day arriving, then I'll jump into some football things and then move forward. When um, I first went up there, it was, it was on a weekend, my parents and my oh, sister, just under me, I'm, I'm the oldest of four. I'm the two boys, two girls. And we drove up from Middletown, Ohio. We stopped in Albany, New York. And to prep myself for Cambridge, I went and bought for the first time in my life a copy of the Wall Street Journal. My parents thought that was the funniest thing I've ever done because I didn't read it. I just folded it up and put it under my elbow. And, and we came and it was a Sunday. I, I remember that very clearly. I had an aunt living in, Rocks in uh, Dorchester. And we were walking around uh, Harvard Yard, and I was up there for the dorm crew. And I think the dorm crew was either a week or two. And uh, as we were walking around, we saw um, uh, an African-American student. He's the first Harvard student that I had seen. And he was about six, eight. And I think there were two women with him. And we introduced ourselves. He said, my name is Barry Williams. McCluskey. I said, are you here for dorm crew? He said, yes, we're here for dorm crew. Um, and then we would go forward. Um, so Barry was the first student that I, I met uh, at Harvard. We became good friends. And over the years, we uh, uh, Barry became captain of the, of the um, basketball team. I was, I was quarterback on the, on, on the football team. We learned uh, Harvard. We learned the yard, we learned uh, Boston during those two weeks of scrubbing down toilet, toilets and walls and everything else before everybody else would show up. Uh, so that was my introduction. But four years later, Barry and I had the distinct pleasure of leading our classes into commencement as the first and second marshals and the first two marsh African-American marshals uh, in the history of the school as first and second. So that's a, a long, long loop uh, in terms of getting um, uh, Harvard in introduced. But in terms of in terms of uh, football and, and Harvard, um, it, it was in interesting in the sense that um, people always, you know, what was it like, you know, breaking the, the ice, so to speak? And I was never bothered by that um, at all. 
actually, I had a lot of fun playing football in high school where we talk a lot of trash. It was loud. Your friends were in the stadium, this kind of thing. And Harvard, they're relatively sedate, uh, the, st- the, the stadium, until Yale came. The, the coach was John Yavickson. And Yavickson was a man who, <laughs> who, who rarely smiled. He was, he was not a Woody Hayes. He was not a, like my high school coach. He was very calm. And he looked like he was in mater- maternity ward once this time, <laughs> waiting nervously for the game for the game to proceed. And he rarely talked at halftime. But the, the players were very supportive. Um, we had decent uh, uh, seasons. Um, I had the, the, the mistake of, not mistake, but the, the bad luck, I guess. Uh, well, not even bad luck, but uh, tearing a hamstring in my first game there. Um, and probably should have set out uh, a couple of games before trying to come back in. That, that, that hampered me the whole, the whole season. It's not an excuse, but it's the first time I've ever been injured in any sport. I've been playing organized sport, basketball, football, since uh, I was in the sixth grade. Uh, so I got through that particular year, that my junior year, and then uh, went on to the senior year, and I was healthy or healthier, I should say, at that, that particular time. When leaving uh, Harvard my senior year, um, I turned in my the, the warm-up clothes that I was using to work out, jogging and so forth. And I went to the, the window to, to turn them in. And uh, the, the, the managers who, who worked the windows, the equipment windows, were from Dublin, Ireland. They would come to Boston, rent an apartment and room together during the seasons. And some specialized in football. And they said, John, we hate to see you leave. Um, you had an outstanding career here. And I said, well, well, maybe, maybe, maybe. I, I was used to outstanding careers in high school. Um, but I said, well, okay, we were five, two, and two, and then six and three. And they said, well, no, 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 no. You got it wrong. You never lost to Yale. And I said, but it was your freshman year, your junior varsity year, your two years of varsity. You never lost to Yale. That means success. And I said, okay. After that, uh, I, I didn't touch football again. Um, I went to, I can fill in this, this space a little later. I went to Miles College, um, out west of Stanford for a year just to write. Um, but it was some years later, maybe around 85, I was at none of the reunions between that time. And I, um, I went back for a game. My uncle from Amherst was going to join me. Beautiful day. Uh, he, something happened in, in the family, in-laws, that he had, he couldn't make it. So I sold his ticket, went into the stadium alone, watched Harvard play Holy Cross, waiting for this wave of nostalgia to wash over me. Uh, waiting for the adrenaline to come back. And it didn't happen in the first quarter. And so I began to look at the skyline, began to look around the stadium. <laughs> and it didn't come. And I left in the third quarter. And I was bothered by that for a long time. And I said, what's going on? And a good friend said something very simple. He said, you've turned the chapter, you've turned the book, you moved on. And I thought given the, the banquet talks that I'd heard 
brilliant ones from brilliant coaches over the years that it never left you, that you would be sort of locked into this forever. But this line, this very simple line said, I was telling you it's time to move on. Um, and that was a very poignant moment for me. As much as I love football, it's just as good as football had been to me for, for many, many years. Uh, I'm still a Cleveland Browns fan, which means I'm an optimist. I continue to be an optimist in most things in terms of world affairs and, and, and many other domestic affairs. Um, and I still enjoy the game very, very much. Um, it's been, been very kind to me. Um, and uh, I've I, I learned that it was time to, uh, to move forward. As far as writing is concerned, my junior year, um, a man named Alan Lebowitz uh, was my instructor uh, in an introductory creative writing, fiction writing course. And it's intriguing to hear his name these days because one of his best students after going to Tufts University was, uh, what is it, the niece of Donald Trump. And she mentioned, has mentioned his name several times on the air about how inspired instructor he was for her. And he said she was one of his best students. But Alan, Alan it, it encouraged me. I mean, my, the stuff I wrote was lousy, but he, uh, he encouraged me. And I took an advanced writing course from Monroe Engel, um, in which I guess it was limited to maybe 10 students or so. Um, and with that, I had enough, I guess, enthusiasm, inspiration uh, to apply to graduate school. And I applied to one school only because I wanted to see California. And they let me in, no fellowship, no assist, assistance until the end of the first quarter, where I guess either Wallace Stegner or Richard Scowcroft, the two instructors there, said, well, okay, we'll take a chance and we'll give him some, um, some money. And so I finished it, that first year without the degree, then went south, where again, the long arms of Harvard had beckoned me. John Monroe, Dean of Students. Mm that quit, uh, had resigned from uh, Harvard, took a great deal of publicity, Time Magazine and everything, to take over as, I think it was uh, head of freshman studies at Miles College. And he had said before uh, leaving in, in a chance meeting in his office, um, have you ever thought about teaching? I said, no, I've never thought about teaching. And he said, well, if you ever do, uh, call me. And uh, you, uh, I'll be down in Alabama, Birmingham, Alabama, and uh, there might be a job for you. Then, uh, to make a long story short, I was in, uh, admitted to the VISTA program. Do you remember VISTA? It was the domestic. Um, yeah. yeah. I had an assignment to go to Baltimore. Uh, I was all ready to go, bags packed, but something didn't feel right. I said, that, I don't feel right about this. So I called John Road and I said, look, uh, I'll take a chance and, and you know, that job is still open, I'll come down. He said, okay, you got three weeks to get from San Francisco to uh, the Bay Area to, uh, to Birmingham. And I went down and talked. The first class had, had no pedagogy classes, thought about the two best teachers I'd had in elementary school, talked about Al, uh, Al Lebowitz. And I said, okay, I'll just bring all that together as a stew and use the best parts of them uh, in my approach. Uh, and uh, I loved it and talked for over 40 years 
uh, moving from Miles to Valparaiso to Case Western Reserve to Indiana University in 1977. So that's a roundabout uh, uh, story. It leaves out the football phase, but it's, I feel like the uh, I'm on the train looking at the station as the train moves away from the station. It's still a part of you. The memory of it is very strong mm -hmm. still, but it's just a phase of the uh, phase of the uh, phase of one's life. Did you ever think about uh, going pro? No, um, can't, that's a, a, a um, um, in high school maybe, in college possibly. I'm a Johnny Unitas fan, Baltimore team. Um, but around my senior year, I began to, I don't know how to put it, but the world was closing in. And there was the marshes in the South. You pick up the New York Times and there was another church being firebombed in Mississippi, Alabama. There are the movements that we hear. I saw Malcolm X, I think it was Leverett House uh, talk. Um, I went to, Wilbur Jordan and I, a classmate, went to the mosque in Roxbury where Louis X was a speaker. Uh, he asked us uh, after our third visit, you would make very good Muslim ministers, Nation of Islam. Have you thought about joining the nation? And I said, well, what, what, what's involved here? Well, you have to um, not have uh, white friends, close friends. Um, you can't smoke through alcohol. Didn't do any of that at that time, at least. Uh, and you must uh, give up pork. That was a deal breaker. Pork. <laughs> uh, so back to the point here, the, the world was closing in. And, and so my interest began to grow. I mean, I was still hungry for to play the game of football. See that there were some other things to attend to. And so football sort of lost its luster. I did get a form letter from the then uh, New England Patriots, but no, 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 I didn't, I didn't, I didn't pay that much mind. So you mentioned that uh, playing football against Yale was always uh, something special. Well, my last game with, with Yale was at the Yale Bowl, and uh, uh, so, someone said, <laughs> I think at that time. <laughs> A friend who, who, who does this kind of history said, wait, you realize that uh, George Bush was a, a cheerleader of the game. And when you were bounced out of bounds, if you had knocked him down, uh, we may have had a different kind of politics to emerge. Uh, <laughs> and I, I know nothing about Bush or um, the, 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 the fellow who was, uh, oh, I'm forgetting his name too. But at any rate, um, it, it it was it, it, it was it was magic. It was it was it was exciting. Um, we know we had to win. Um, I, I guess it's like Army and Navy, or growing up in Ohio, it's like Ohio State, and Michigan. It has that same kind of end of the end of the season, or, or Indiana, Indiana, Purdue, the same Indiana, the same end of the season. Do it even if you had a bad season, a poor season. If you beat those guys, that you you've had a successful season. This is Barry Williams. I have two questions, and answer one because we want to go around. But I'm very intrigued because someone asked me the other day: Do you encounter? Did you encounter any racial incidents 
when you were at Harvard. And the second question, if we have time, is how did you feel as a black athlete at Harvard in those times? Because it was challenging to be a black athlete, either one of those. As an athlete, I said, okay, okay. That, that's, as, a, as, a, as a football player specifically, not crew or, or, or squash or what have you, um, you, you may carry a certain kind of burden. I, I said, okay, I've got to do double. The Jackie Robinson rule, I've got to do double. Double. Um, and an African-American and your quarterback, <coughs> excuse me. And the first day of freshman, uh, f- freshman, freshman trials, there were like maybe 10 quarterbacks, including one who's first team All-American high school. Um, and I was the only African-American uh, out that particular, for that particular position, for that particular time, as I recall. Um, so I said, this is going to be interesting because most of them will have never, these players have never had an African-American player, let alone quarterback calling signals and, and sort of guiding them around of a huddle and guiding the spirit. And so I felt that that was a, a, a double, double duty. So as an athlete, yeah, it was, you, you carry around the, the notion that, ah, okay, you're naturally, because you have naturally reflexes and blah, 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 blah. It's like the old question these days of the blue collar player. If you hear the announcer say on TV, he's a blue collar player, yeah, meaning yeah. an American player who could just step on a pair of shoes and go out and slam dunk, not realizing that uh, the, the, what, what African-American players do from Seth to LeBron or whomever, you just name them. They were out there in the hot sun on a, on a, on a lonely basketball court shooting all day long. I was throwing a football through a tire on my mother's great uh, 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 hanger clothes to the tee. And I'll swing the tire and, and people walk down the aisle and say, what are you doing? I'm saying, I'm looking, throwing, 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 throwing. So people sort of forgive that, forget that kind of discipline that the, the athletes grew up with. Discipline of writing, same thing. When you write, you want to make it all look easy. It looks easy only because of the hours you've already put in to write that line, paragraph, that story. The same thing with athletics in this regard is that if it looks natural on the field, it wasn't meant that you, you, were, you were born that way, but you put in the time and the sweat to do it. So Barry, back to your question. That is that that sort of thing is um, either dismissed uh, too too many times uh, because of color. Now the interesting thing for a quarterback, and this gets away from race, but I'll come back to that. The interesting thing with my race is that uh, 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 about quarterback is that when you win, everybody loves you, and you're walking down the street after the game, and you're introduced to the parents of, the, of your classmates. But when you lose the game, people cross the street. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How are you doing? <laughs> so, yes, we, we have that. But I think the burden, particularly at Harvard, was that we not only achieved on the on basketball court or the football field or on the track or the soccer field, but in the classroom. Because we had that also to, to carry us. Uh, as far as racial incidents, uh, I don't know of any specific things on uh, a campus 
but the, I would get every now and then uh, through the years, at least the first two years, um, the, the remark to say that if I got a C, um, um, I would be not happy, not very happy at all. Uh, but I would sort of get a comment on from the assistant coaches, from um, of some players. Well, you know, you ought to be, you ought to be happy with that. You ought to be happy with that thing. And I was not happy with that uh, that thing. So uh, uh, there, there was a burden of, of an intellectual achievement. There was a burden of intellectual uh, stature and capacity uh, that was there uh, all the time. When, before coming to Harvard, I had been, I looked at Northwestern and Minnesota and Ohio State and other places. And the first thing the, the coaches would say is that we can get you tutor. And I said, what, is, what does that mean? And the first thing players would brag about was that they could get a, a tutor to help them do school. Uh, not write their papers, no, but, but, but help them. The, the assumption was that they were incapable of doing honors work. But no, no dramatic, no dramatic barrier, no, no dramatic issues that I, that I can remember. Mm-hmm. And that's the other thing, getting back to being a quarterback. You're going to get criticized. And if you can't stand, as, as a writer too, if you can't stand criticism, I've seen writers crushed by a negative review, uh, young writers. Uh, but those who've been around a while say, well, okay, it comes. I can't read. <laughs> the, critic, the, critic, the critic doesn't know poetry. The critic doesn't know history as a way of getting out of it. So it takes a thick skin, but but it starts with something very tender that's coming from the inside uh, to shape it before you give it and make it public. Do you have any comments on the current uh, opportunity for uh, college athletes to make money on their reputations? I think in a very general sense, uh, it has to be closely monitored. Um, and I don't know how to do that. I don't know how that that's to be done. But I think if they're out there in the field, giving those hours or, or on the court, give, giving those hours upon hours um, and uh, someone else who's monitoring them, making millions of, of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars, um, they're bringing that kind of money into the stadiums, the big stadiums, um, that they should be able to do it. Now, on the other hand, there's a part of me that says, okay, you're getting a free education if you're getting an athletic scholarship. Um, so what, what else do you want? And also you look at the swimmers and the field hockey people. Um, they're not getting rich off of their uh, images. So is it fair to them? So something can be worked out so that it either be shared uh, with other athletes. Uh, yeah, I think, that should, I think that should be opened up. 10 years ago, I would have said no. I said it's the worst thing you could possibly do. The game is it's becoming nasty already. It's not, you know. But the more and more I look at these teams, the more and more I look at the salaries, the more and more I look at the, the crowds, I say, yeah, 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 let's 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 open it up. So do you think that uh, really good uh, college football players who play at these, you know, huge uh, football uh, mammoth schools like Ohio State or Alabama or or uh, Oklahoma or Texas, are they actually getting a decent education or is it that just in the background? 
Uh, I think they're struggling. I think those who do get the good thing are struggling. Um, at, at Harvard, what what uh, well when I was in high school visiting school back then, I don't know if it's changed that much now. Um, you you were told what days to take your labs, your, your chemistry labs. Um, you were told which courses to avoid. <clears throat> so this, that, and the other. I think now for a young man, I mean, male-centered at this moment, to, to get a good education, he would have to struggle. At Harvard, the, the pre-meds on the football team, they took organic chemistry when they could. They took the labs um, and they did it. Um, but to answer your question, no, I think the majority are not getting good education. Um, they do have an army of tutors uh, who will help them through. Um, I had an experience once I was registering as an athlete, a very well-recruited basketball player, and he was walking around with the head tutor as if he was a great dame, but she was leading around a great dame on the leash. <laughs> he looked at the description of the course said, and, and, and said, I want to take this course. And uh, she said, no, nah, I, don't, I don't think you'd be comfortable there. He said, no, I want to take this course. It had to be a course that I was teaching. And she uh, walked away and sort of winked back at me and said, no, no, that's a McCluskey course. That would be too rough for you. So let's, let's, let's get you something else over here. And she said, no, 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 I want to take this course. <laughs> he took the course and did well. Uh, she knew him well enough to know that he did have the sort of motivation to do well, but she also confessed that she would have, uh, anybody else, some of the others would not have encouraged him to take the course. So that's just an example, but I, I think for Alabama, Ohio State, and I know, I know I'm stereotyping, I know I'm stereotyping here, but uh, from what I read from the students who come back to me or students who go into coaching, that no, if you take the easy route, you win the game, um, you may go to pro, uh, and you, um, you, 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 the, you, the alumni will take care of you after you get out of school. If you don't, go, if you don't make it in the pros, uh, I think that's a waste of talent uh, in many, many ways. The 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 the, the, the best in my experience with recruiting, the best experience I had was uh, I was all set to go to Northwestern. On the basis of a conversation, a visit with Air Parsegian, who went on to Notre Dame. And Parsegian didn't say anything to any of the players that weekend about professional football. He didn't say a word about professional football. He talked about academics primarily and character. And he did something else I've never seen done before, heard afterwards. He had every player, the, the, the tackles, the ends, the linebackers, the quarterback. Everybody stripped down to gym, to shorts and tennis shoes and, and a T-shirt. And we played basketball. This is for football. We played basketball. And they just watched. And what he was judging was athleticism, balance, teamwork, those kinds of things. And he, But when we talked with us one-on-one, two-on-two, three-on-three, he never talked about it because he knew the odds of getting to a pro contract. I think it was Arthur Ashford who said that the, 
the odds of getting to professional sports is like your odds would be better being a neurosurgeon. And I think he had it right. They're making them spend so much time now uh, practicing and training and all this stuff. It's I can't imagine being in college and spending four, five hours a day on a sport and then thinking that I could do well with a demanding curriculum. You have to, there are some guys who are pretty much, maybe they're geniuses and they can do it, but most of the rest <clears> of them are regular people. You can't do it. There's no way you could do it. No, 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 you can't. I mean, it's, it's unforgiving, the, the schedule that they have. Mm-hmm. Uh, even at Harvard, the interesting thing for us was that, okay, you play a game Saturday, uh, Sunday was an off day, Monday you watch film, short practice, and then you had the other three days to, to do you know, the, the hours. Our hours were shorter, but, but not by much during the week, the three days before the next game. Friday sort of slack off, and then of course uh, the game began on Saturday. Um, but if you were, uh, again, I, uh, a pre-med, for example, if you needed the lab courses, right. oh, maybe I push the lab courses off to the summer, maybe. Uh, maybe I can do it this particular way, but I take my hats off to the fellows who are able to do that. And, and they, they they graduated on time, they become successful in their careers, and so forth. But now, with the, the, the in-house structure saying, no, 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 play it down, forget about pre-med, Let, let's, do, let's do something else, or engineering, let's do, let's do something else here. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's it's it, it, it's tough, but 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 again, 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 uh, we're focusing on football and basketball, perhaps. But the crew, the uh, swimmers, they put in big time. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep, they do. I mean, that's what Lowell Lowell Johnson, who was in a, in our class, said for the book that we wrote. That uh, crew was really the most the, the most difficult uh, sport, and he said he would. He, he ended up quitting because he said he would fall asleep in Lamont Library reading after a while, and he just went back to rowing for the houses. And he said that crew was just uh, excruciatingly, you know, difficult. Yeah, yeah. So, so you, when you when you make that decision to to do both, um, you need some decent tu- tutoring about it. Now, interesting to me was uh, I was able to visit. Cambridge as a, um, a high school senior. It's, it's, uh, that's a long story too, but uh, Hobie Armstrong, I met uh, in a room with, um, I think there was a hockey player. I think it was a hockey player and a football player. And so we were talking one evening and they weren't saying, rah, 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 you gotta come to Harvard, blah, 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 blah. we playing Yale, anything like that. I think the hockey player, had been an all-American athlete. And he said his decision was to not do, do hockey, to stick to his studies. The football players said the same thing. And Hobie talked about um, you know, the hours put in, but it was, it was something he decided to do, and that he would deal with the, the time pressure. And I respected that because A, it meant coming to Harvard meant, you know, I don't have to play football if I don't want to. <laughs> I said the only reason I'm out is because I love the game. It's also kind of, it was also liberating to hear someone who had done extremely, extremely well 
at the uh, high school level say, well, okay, that's, I'm going to concentrate on philosophy. I'm going to concentrate on, on, on fine arts. Um, I'm going to go a different path. And so there was that kind of freedom that the, 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 the that trip uh, opened up for me personally. Um, but it's it's important that you know you know what you're getting into, and and you don't get into it and then start complaining later on. You say, okay, I'm in this. I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it well. Now, I'll do the hours. Now, for me personally, I did better academically. Um, well, no, that's not true. Let me back up. Um, when football season was over. I had too much time on my hands. <laughs> I would, I would find another job. I would find something to do, and I think it's it's the kind of pressure where you you force your mind, your body, to do what you have to do under certain kind of pressures. And that's odd to to say that. And I would think I would just have a ball after the season was over and have all this free time. Oh no, I found something else to take its. To, to substitute where I could. <laughs> and in teaching, I, I learned that lesson the, the same way. I had a student from West Point who had a, a leave, brought his family to Bloomington, Indiana, where I was still in. And he took a heavy reading course that I was doing, the novel. He got straight A's. And so we talked about his pressures taking the law courses and taking a novel course that he didn't have to take. I said, how do you do this? You got your family, you got two kids, you got this, that, and the other. He said, look, in the army, they train you in the field to do, okay, let's say eight hours, office, clerical, something. Then they cut it to six. Then they cut it to four. You got to do the same amount of work in half the time. And that's the way I've been trained. And I said, whoa. But sometimes that added, that added uh, tension um, can bring you through deadlines. Well, John, you know that. The deadline, what, what would the deadline do, right? <laughs> if, yeah. if you had, Nothing if you, like terror. Terror is what you want. But I wanted to ask you one question about mm -hmm. Rob. Uh, how much uh, did you have interaction with or did you study whether or not uh, there was uh, any interaction between Nelson Algren uh, and the, uh, what I, for want of a better term, I would call the Chicago Renaissance of black artists and uh, writers uh, uh, and so forth. I don't know of any um, relationship between Algren um, and say the South Side uh, Writers Group that was one of the earliest uh, groups uh, of, of black writers in Southside that Richard Wright had been a part of, uh, Margaret Walker, uh, Mark Walker Alexander had been a part of, Gwilym Brooks was nearby, and I don't recall mentioning Auburn's name. They were aware of Auburn as a writer in Chicago. Um, Auburn certainly knew there was another wing of writers in Chicago who were um, Somewhere, somewhere close to uh, the, the, the John Reed Club, the Communist Party, um, which had a different ring than it might have today. 
um, but they would, they would still be called of their period, the radical writers. But in terms of the intermingling that I think you're asking about, uh, I haven't been able to, to uncover uh, with, with Auburn specifically, or with the greater part of the um, John Reed Club, the Communist Party, and the South Side Writers Group. I can say all those people knew each other. Dick Durham, Richard Durham, who was the editor of Muhammad Speaks before I was, who also wrote uh, soap operas, the dramatist, uh, Ali biography, and so forth. Anyway, he told me they, they were in these clubs, the cultural clubs supported by the New Deal uh, way back. And so Studs Terkel and uh, Durham, these guys knew each other. They, all these people knew each other as young guys, guys in their 20s and, and women. So mm -hmm. I, I would bet, I don't know for sure, but Margaret Walker, Algren, anyone who was there, who was in his or her 20s or so during the New Deal, it's almost, you can just assume that they knew each other. Yeah. They probably were in a lot of the same organizations. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, thank you so much for coming on. And, My pleasure. Uh, we'll have to do it again. And thank you, Barry. Thank you for including us. All right. Thank you so much. And we'll talk to everybody later. See you now. Okay. Bye-bye. Right. That was John McCluskey from the Harvard College class of 1966. He was the first black starting quarterback at Harvard. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast which you can find on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or from wherever you get podcasts. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.